All right, if you got your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we're reading verses 9 through 13 this morning. As we start this morning, we're going to start with this statement that's going to kind of help set our premise this morning. Loving Jesus and following Jesus means obeying Jesus. If we are going to love God, if we are going to follow God, there is an expectation that as Christians, we obey God. Now, Jesus is the one who gives us this commandment. In John chapter 14, he says in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in verse 24, he says, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. As Christians, we have a commandment to keep God's word. As Christians, there is an expectation placed on our life that if we are going to be those who follow and love Jesus, then we are going to keep His commandments. These are His commandments. The Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, showing us who God is, showing us His plan to love people, showing us His expectations for what morality looks like, for what obedience looks like, for what trusting Him and loving Him looks like. So, as believers, we have God's Word. And as believers, there is an expectation to follow His commandments, to obey His commandments if we are going to love Him. Which, as Christians, that's what we should do. That's kind of our, our chief goal, our chief call, is to love God. But we also recognize that sometimes loving God or obeying God can be difficult. Sometimes when we strive to obey God, it's difficult because it goes against our very nature. We all have a sin nature. Even if you are a Christian and you have been saved and redeemed and the Holy Spirit now dwells within you, there is still a part of you that longs for sin. There is still a part of me that desires sin. And so when if I'm going to obey God, that means there's a part of me that I have to fight against. There's a part of me that is saying, no, do this. Even though God says it's wrong, even though God says it's bad, this is what's really going to make you happy. Then I have God's word over here that says, don't do that. Don't follow that. Follow me. And sometimes it is difficult to obey God because there is a sin nature that exists within me that wants just the opposite. Sometimes it can be be difficult to obey God because it sets us as opposite or as opposed to the very culture that we live in. And now, even more so than probably ever, following God and keeping God's commandments and having the beliefs that God has commanded us to have makes us just diametrically opposed from the world around us. And it's not because our world is more sinful now than it used to be. It's just that our world now is not nearly as ashamed of its sin as it used to be. No longer tries to hide its sin or cover it up. Now our sin marches in the streets and our sin shouts and our sin is, is proud to be sinful. Whether it's abortion, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's uh, whatever sin that we want to talk about. To obey God, to have a mindset, a belief system based on God's word and on God's commandment means that we look and live differently than the people around us. Now, there's a biblical expectation that we're called strangers and aliens, but but maybe now even more so than ever. And so, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves this. Am I going to follow God and love God and obey God even when it's difficult? Or am I content to uh, cut out parts of God's Word or disavow parts of God's Word or ignore parts of God's Word because it's easier for me and it makes my life with other people easier? 
What are we going to do? Are we going to keep God's commandments and follow them all and completely and love Him because of who He is and what He's done? Or are we going to say, okay, God, this I'm good with, this I'm not. So let me kind of pick and choose what I want to follow. Thomas Jefferson famously created what's called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. He did not call it that. He called it uh, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what Thomas Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson took the Gospels and he took a razor blade and he literally went through and cut out the parts that he did not agree with. And he took the parts that he did agree with and he glued them to another sheet of paper and he created his own version of the Gospels, his own version of the story of the life of Jesus. And he cut out all the miracles and he cut out anything that he said was contrary to reason. So the parts of the Gospels that he liked, he kept. The parts that he didn't like, he cut them out and he threw them away. They had nothing to do with his life. As we go through this passage, what I want us to be asking ourselves is how much do I love God to keep His Word? Do I keep God's Word? Do I, not that we're going to keep it perfectly. We all struggle. But is that my goal? Is that my aim? Is that my passion and pursuit? Or am I perfectly okay to cut out the parts of God's Word that I don't agree with? All right. Let's read our passage, Mark chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Then we'll pray, and then we'll go through the passage. Now, if you remember last week, uh, we looked at the story of the transfiguration when uh, Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John with him on this mountain, uh, and the glory of God, his, his, who He was before He came and put on human flesh, began to shine forth and show forth, and Elijah and Moses came down, and they saw this awesome picture of who Jesus was and His glory. They heard the voice of God saying, This is my Son, listen to Him. So where we pick up is they are coming down off of the mountain. So verse 9, And as they were coming down the mountain, He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why did the scribes say that Elijah, or that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now and thank you for this time that you've given us this morning to come and study your word. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, as we look at your truth, God, that you would speak through your word and through your spirit uh, louder than my voice ever could. And Father God, that you would draw us closer to yourself, uh, causing us to uh, interact with you. And God, as you convict, as you can encourage, as you encourage, God, whatever it is, however you meet us this morning, God, let us respond uh, in faith and obedience. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, so the first thing that we see in verses 9 and 10 is that Jesus' words lead to a conflict of belief for the disciples. So they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus tells them not to tell anyone what they've seen until Jesus has risen from the dead. So it says in verse 10, they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
So they were cool with not telling anybody. But when Jesus said not tell anyone until he raised from the dead, that kind of threw off a, a question in their mind. It kind of conflicted with some of the beliefs that they already had. Now, for us to fully kind of comprehend this passage and everything that's going on and everything that Jesus is talking about and everything that the disciples are asking, we've kind of got to put ourselves in the, in the mindset of a first century uh, Jew. We've got to understand what they have been taught. We've got to understand their beliefs so that we can understand what is fully going on in this passage. You see, their culture was a culture that was centered around their religion. Their culture was centered around the law and the Old Testament and the prophets. That was what their entire culture was built on. You see, for us... Depending on how much you went to church as a child might depend on, on how many of the Bible stories that you might be uh, aware of or that you might recognize or you might know by heart. But for them, every child was taught the first five books of the Bible. Not just taught, but they studied them. And they could recite large passages of them. And they knew and understood at least the law and the prophets. They understood the first five books. They had been taught what the prophets said with the rest of the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. Now, whether they kept that as they grew up, whether they believed it as they went farther, that was up to them. But as children, just as a culture, as a society, this was their education. This was how they were taught and what they were taught. So they all had this biblical mind work, uh, baseline of understanding, this biblical framework from which to understand certain things. And so one of the things that they held to, one of the things that they believed was the idea of a resurrection. Here's how a, a Jewish teaching website explains it. It says, Resurrection of the dead is a core doctrine of traditional Jewish theology. Traditional Jews believe that during the Messianic age, so that's when the Messiah comes back. Remember, Jews don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, so they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. During the Messianic age, the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and Jewish people, ingathered from the far corners of the earth, and the bodies of the dead will be brought back to life and reunited with their souls. So the Jews believe that there's, uh, when, when the Messiah comes back, that the temple will be re- rebuilt, and at the end of this time, all those who are dead, who, who trusted in God, who knew God, who were Jews, uh, who followed God's law, who followed God's commandment, would be resurrected back to life. Now, there are passages in Daniel's, there, Daniel, there's passages in Ezekiel that, that guide to this, that, that uh, talk about a resurrection. So this is what their belief was. And in fact, we see it uh, even in John chapter 11, when Jesus is talking to Mary and Martha after Lazarus, their brother, has died. And Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha responds to Jesus and says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So they had this idea of resurrection, but their idea of resurrection was the last day, towards the end of time, a long, long ways off. And here Jesus is saying, hey, look, keep this under your hat until I'm resurrected. The way Jesus says that, that sounds like that's going to happen soon. That's going to happen imminently. That's going to happen not too long from now. A time where they are still going to be alive so that they can start telling people about what they just saw. And so their mind is kind of blown. Their mind, this thought that that Jesus is going to be resurrected. Not only is Jesus going to be resurrected, but the resurrected he's going to die was, was really kind of shocking to their belief structure. 
Remember, as first century Jews, they expected the Messiah to be a conqueror, not someone who would die. The Messiah was supposed to come in on his white horse with his sword. He was supposed to destroy the Romans. He was supposed to set up Israel as the national powerhouse, as the global powerhouse. And he was supposed to rule and reign in an earthly kingdom. There's going to be a time when Jesus does do that. But this first time, Jesus came not to set up an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. And so as Jesus is talking to them and mentions his death and resurrection, which talks about the kingdom of God, which talks about salvation, the gospel, how he died for our sins and rose again to give us newness of life. As he talks about that, they're kind of stuck on this idea of of resurrection. They're stuck on this idea of, of this doesn't make sense. This is not what we've been taught. This is not what we are to understand. If you're the Messiah, how are you going to die in order to be resurrected again? So we see in verses 11 and 12 that their conflict of belief leads them to question their expectations of the Messiah. Verse 11, and they ask him, why do the scribes, remember the scribes were the, some of the teachers of the law. They're the, uh, kind of the preachers. So why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, uh, that of the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, As they ask this question about Elijah, there's kind of two questions that are kind of sitting behind it where they're they're really asking Jesus. So they're asking this Jesus this question about Elijah, uh, but there's really kind of these two underlying questions that are going along with it. One, if you're the Messiah, how are you going to die? If you're the Messiah, if you really are the Messiah, what is this death that you're talking about? You're not supposed to die. And then two, if you're really the Messiah... Where is Elijah? The scribes say, these people that spend their whole day, their whole life studying the Old Testament, they say that Elijah is supposed to come first. If that's true, then where is Elijah? If you're really the Messiah, where is Elijah? Was, was what we just saw, Elijah on the mountain of transfiguration, is, is that what, what they're referring to, that Elijah must come first? Is there something that we're not missing? What's going on here? How do all these puzzles, pieces, fit together? Because you see, during that time, once again, we're putting ourselves in their mindset. There was a common teaching, a common prophecy that was taught that before Messiah could come, Elijah had to come first. So Jesus says that this is an accurate uh, belief. We see it found in Malachi chapter 3 and chapter 4. Malachi chapter 3, 1 says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, before, the, before he comes, there's going to be a messenger who comes first. Then Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn hearts of the fathers to their children and hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So Jesus validates this. Jesus says, yes, there is going to be, uh, they're right, Elijah comes first. Elijah comes before the Messiah. And he's going to come back to that in a second. But he kind of stops in their track and he says, yes, Elijah's coming, but, but what of the Messiah? He said, let me read it how he wrote it, or how he said it. He says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
Jesus says, yes, they're right about Messiah or about Elijah. But what about the Messiah? What about the old? What does the Old Testament say about the Messiah? Yes, that he's a conqueror. Yes, that he comes. But what does it say about his suffering? There are several Old Testament prophecies that talk about the suffering of the Messiah. Psalm chapter 22, verses 6 through 7 say this. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Now, if you go back and you read Psalm chapter 22, uh, Psalm 22 starts off um, with the same words that Jesus said on the cross when he says, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And so as Jesus is on the cross and He is crying out, Father, why have you forsaken me? Those who would have heard that, their minds would have immediately jumped to Psalm 22. Remember, they all had a working knowledge of the Bible and the important passages. Psalm chapter 22 was an important passage for the Jews. And so as they heard that, it would have gone back. And what Jesus is saying is this, this psalm that talks about suffering. It's talking about me. It's talking about the Messiah. Then Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant. This is talking about the Messiah. It's talking about Jesus. Like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that, that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. You see, Jesus is confronting the expectations that disciples had of the Messiah. In the Jewish mindset, the the Messiah was the conqueror with the sword on the horse, the ruler, uh, the military guy. And Jesus is saying, look, yeah, that's going to come. But right now, the Bible also talks about the Messiah who's the suffering servant. The Messiah who comes to, to, to be cast at, to be spit at, to have their their heads wagged at is what Isaiah said. The Messiah has come to suffer. The Messiah has come to die. He's causing them to rethink what they know about the Messiah. And, And here's why this is important. The Jewish teachers and the Jewish leaders, whether purposefully or accidentally, I'll tend to lean purposefully, overlooked this idea of Jesus coming as a sufferer. Or the Messiah having to suffer. You see, biblical prophecy that did not fit their preconceived expectations for the Messiah were pushed aside and ignored. They had their idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. He's the king. He's on his horse. He's got a sword. He's coming in. He's kicking tail and taking names. That's the Messiah. Any passages that talk about a Messiah who suffers or a Messiah who dies or a Messiah who might be seen as weak, we're not looking at that. We're pushing that to the side. We're ignoring that. And we're just looking at the passages that talk about Jesus or the Messiah as the king and conqueror. They did the exact same thing that Thomas Jefferson did. The passages that went along with what they wanted, they were good with. But the Bible passages, the prophecy, the things that did not go along with what they already wanted, the things that did not go along with with how they thought the world should work, the things that did not bow to their uh, opinions and bow to their beliefs, they got rid of and they ignored. 
And as they did this, not only did it impact them as teachers, but it also impacted all the Jews. It had impacted the disciples. So now they're coming down and they're asking Jesus these questions. Why is this happening? Where is Elijah at? What do you mean dying and resurrection? So Jesus tells them that the Messiah has to suffer, that the Bible talks about that. And then in verse 13, he says this. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Self-editing God's word caused the Jews to miss out on God's greatest gift. Jesus said Elijah had come. And they did whatever they pleased. Elijah come and they hated him and they despised him and they ultimately they had him killed. So what does he mean? Did Elijah really come? Was he um, reincarnated? And then was Elijah walking around that they all missed it? No. Here's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says that Elijah came, but not in reincarnation, but he came in the, and that John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 14, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of the heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence has taken it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Verse 14, And if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's dad, he is in the temple praying, and an angel comes down to him. Zechariah is very old. Him and his wife have not been able to have kids. And an angel comes down and tells them that they are going to have children. Zechariah says, how is that going to happen? The angel says, well, you're going to have to be quiet, and you can't talk until he's born. But when he's born, you'll be able to talk. And as the angel is talking to him, he says this about his son, about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And they will go before him, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Jesus tells the disciples, look, John the Baptist came and he, y'all missed him. John the Baptist came and, and, and y'all did whatever y'all wanted to him because... God's Word had been ignored because you picked and you chose what you wanted to believe about God's Word. And as the the one who came to prepare the way came, as John the Baptist came in the power and the spirit of Elijah, you absolutely missed it. Because they missed John the Baptist as the one who came in the spirit of Elijah, they missed his message. Now we saw in Luke chapter 1, that passage, that he says that he was coming to make a way. He was coming to prepare the hearts. Here's what John the Baptist came to do in Matthew chapter 3. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of uh, the crying one in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist came with a message. John the Baptist said, came baptizing and preaching repentance, coming and saying, look, get ready. The Messiah is about to come. Get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready. The, the, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is coming. Prepare yourself. Confess. Repent of your sins. Focus on God. Focus on His Word. Turn your gaze towards Him because the Messiah is coming and you need to be ready. 
And yet because they had picked and chosen what they wanted to believe, they missed out on this message. And we know they missed out on the message because ultimately what happened is he was rejected by the Jewish leaders and then he was killed by Herod. The Jewish leaders, um, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to them and he says, where does uh, the baptism of John came from or, or by what authority does he do so? And they're like, well, if, if we say that... Um, if we say that it came from God, then you're going to ask us, why weren't you baptized? Why didn't you go out and repent? Why didn't you listen to Him? If we say that it came from Satan, then all the people love John the Baptist, and so they're going to turn on us. They did not believe in what John the Baptist said. In fact, in, John chapter, or, sorry, in Luke chapter 7, uh, it said that they used to say that, that John the Baptist had a demon, that he was demon-possessed, that he was crazy, that he was insane. The Jewish leaders rejected him. They had no business to do with him. They wanted nothing to do with him. He was an outcast. He lived out in the wilderness. He wore camel hair. He ate honey and locusts. He was a wild man. We have nothing to do with him. We don't care about him. We don't want him around. They rejected him. And then Herod, we saw this story a couple of months ago, back in Mark chapter 6, where Herod had him killed because John the Baptist was speaking out against Herod and his, uh, his infidelities and his uh, really kind of crazy incestuous marriage and lifestyle and everything going on with that. And so he was rejected and he was killed. That they did what they wanted to with him. They missed the point. John the Baptist came with a purpose. John the Baptist came with a message. And the purpose and the message was, get ready, the Messiah is coming. But because they only wanted to know and believe the parts of the Bible that they agreed with, that was easy for them, that made sense for them, that kind of fit what they already wanted to believe, they rejected everything about this suffering servant. They rejected everything that would have led them to realize that John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And ultimately, ultimately, they missed out on the gospel. Ultimately, they missed out on Jesus Christ. Ultimately, they had the Son of God murdered and killed and hung on a cross like a criminal because it did not fit what they wanted it to fit. He did not fit what they wanted Him to fit. When we try to pick and choose what commands we like and don't like, we miss out on who God is and what He wants to do in our lives. We don't get the freedom, ultimately, to say, I want to believe parts of the Bible and then there are parts of the Bible I don't want to believe. I like this verse, I don't like this verse, so I'll believe this and I won't believe this. If we believe that this is God's Word, it's what God's Word says about itself, it says that this is um, God-breathed, that this is God's heart, that it's God's mind, that it's living and active because God speaks through it. If we believe that this is God's Word, if we believe that this has authority in our life, then we don't get to pick and choose what we believe and what we accept. And when we do, or if we do, then we wind up like the Pharisees and the scribes. We wind up like these, these first century Jews who only believed what they wanted to believe about the Messiah, rejected everything else, and ultimately, ultimately they missed out on the Messiah. Ultimately they missed out on salvation. Ultimately they missed out on the gifts and the grace of God because instead of submitting to God fully through His Word, they picked and chose what they wanted to believe. So, I said at the beginning that we needed to ask ourselves, 
If we were going to keep God's word, or if we were just going to do what was easy for us. Following God is sometimes difficult. It is. Sometimes it's hard. But it's worth it. And it's good. And the opposite of it, or the the other option there, is if we don't follow God fully, if we want to pick and choose, there are consequences that come with that. If you're not a Christian and you say, look, I like the good teachings, the the morality of Jesus. I don't know about these miracles. I don't know about this whole God thing. I don't know about this whole uh, submitting to Him. Uh, I don't know if I believe all that. Yeah, He's a good guy. I don't mind following some of His life principles. And you find yourself in that Thomas Jefferson situation, then what it can cost you is your eternity. If you are a Christian and you say, you know what, I believe that uh, that Jesus died for my sins, I've trusted that, but when it comes to how the Bible plays out in my everyday life, you know what, this stuff I believe because it's easy for me, but this stuff is difficult, this stuff that that is hard for me to wrestle with, this stuff that that makes me want to need to change my life to line up with it, this stuff that, that is that is harder to believe or that might make me look different from the world around me. I don't know if I want to believe all that. There's consequences that come with that too. And the consequences are, ultimately it's sin, but it also separates us from, not separates us, it it gets in the way of our intimacy and our relationship and our closeness with God. So the question that we're asking ourselves this morning is how do we approach the Word of God? Is it God's Word and we submit to its authority fully and completely? Or do we only take the parts that we like and we get rid of the rest? Like everything in life, there's consequences to both. When we follow God and submit to Him, we are drawn closer to Him. We experience His love, His strength, His truth. And we love Him more and God works in our life in very real and powerful and tangible ways. When we choose to pick and choose, we find ourselves... separated either from God because we've chosen not to believe in the gospel or our intimacy with God, our closest with God is negatively impacted because we've chosen to ignore part of His words saying, God, I'm going to trust you in this, but over in this area, I know more than you do. Where do you stand? Do we submit to God's word or do we pick and choose? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We just thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your word that is living and active. Father God, I pray for myself and everyone in this room, God, that you would convict and convince us of the fact that your word is good, that your word is your word, that your word is living and active, and God, that your word is authoritative over our life, and that God, we would submit to your word because you are God and you are good and you love us. Father God, I pray for anyone in here, God, who has chosen not to accept or believe the gospel yet. Father God, I pray this morning, God, that through, this, uh, through your word, God, they have seen the, um, the necessary need to accept everything that your word says about, about you and about us. And Father God, they would accept that you are a God who loves them and sent his son to die for them. Father God, I pray for Christians in this room, God, who are struggling with sin or struggling with belief. And Father God, they've just chosen to ignore certain aspects of your word. Father God, I pray that you would draw us back in line with your word. God, that we would not pick and choose, but Father God, we would submit our lives, recognizing that you are in control, you are good, and you know so much more and better than us. And God, we would submit to you in your goodness 
God, we would not pick and choose with your word, but God, we would lovingly submit to all of it through your strength and through your grace. Father God, I just pray that you would be at work during this time. It's in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.